cliffcentral.com. Well, my next guest is uh, a brave man, and I'll tell you why in a second, but he just posted this the other day. He said, I write this with a heavy heart. In the last two weeks, my brother and my best friend, the closest and dearest men to me, disowned me. My brother told me, if you go to Israel, you're no longer my brother. My best friend told me, I'm basically supporting ISIS because I said Israel has a right to defend itself. So this is someone who's expressing unpopular opinions, isn't even afraid to do that with his best friend and his brother. So anyone like that is bound to attract a lot of positive and a lot of negative attention. And I'm one of the people who happened to have uh, found him on the internet. It's not like he's trying to hide, um, but he's on X. He's very vocal about his opinions. And it is a great pleasure to have Loai Ahmed on with us this morning. It's such a pleasure. And, and, and congratulations on all the infamy that you seem to be getting on the internet lately. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I actually started writing in English because I used to write in, in Swedish. Uh, for the past four years, but once I changed to English, um, I got a lot of attention because the things that I'm talking about concern a lot of people. I've been writing about Islamism and integration and migration and, and these kind of like major conflicts in, in Swedish. And um, I've gained a bit of a following in Sweden, uh, but you know, Sweden is a tiny country. So once I changed to English, um, a lot of people from all around the world have been more interested in what I have to say. So I'm, I'm really happy that uh, people are, a lot of people are voicing a lot of support to the things that I'm saying. And they're also happy to see that there's someone who has grown up within this culture, who's critical of it and, and who's, who does not want to see Europe succumb into, into the dogma of, of Islamic radicalization. So thank you for having well, yeah. me. Thank you. I will get into Sweden in a minute because that's a fascinating cultural melting pot as well. And I know you've had your own experiences there, which have very much influenced the things that you've been saying on social media. But let's just start with your story at the beginning. You're originally Yemeni. Yes. I grew up, I, I, I was born in Sana'a, Yemen. And Sana'a is a, one of the most conservative Islamic countries in the world. The vast majority of the one, well, all the women actually uh, wear the naqab and the hijab. So um, I grew up never seeing a single woman in my life show her hair, mm -hmm. uh, except for my mother. Uh, my mother is a feminist human rights activist. So th th that's kind of been the beginning of my inspiration. My mom has was also married off when she was eight years old, and she had had to fight for her rights ever since she was a child. She she want, she didn't want to get married. She didn't want to wear the niqab when she was 11. So she's had she's constantly had a struggle to fight against this dogma of Islamic conservatism. So she sought education. She she got a divorce when she was a child and she ended up uh, you know learning and being knowledgeable and 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 dismantling this kind of insanely conservative, ultra-Orthodox Islamic ideology. And she passed that on onto her children to be critical, to seek education. And uh, so I, I grew up in Yemen for 20 years, and I soaked in the waters of Islamism and, and conservatism and hatred towards uh, um, ho homosexuals, LGBT, uh, Jews, different people. And by different people, I mean anybody who is not Muslim, who does not believe mm. in Islam. We have a word for everybody who is not a Muslim, which is kafir or kuffar. So I grew up in all of that for 20 years. And then 2014, I left and I went to Sweden. 
it's a long story on how I, I was able to 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 leave in uh, to leave Yemen and go to Sweden, but thankfully I did. And once I arrived in Sweden, I I had a shock because I I in the refugee camp that I was in, I realized that everybody who was coming to Sweden was, unlike myself, Islamist wanted to change Sweden was not able or willing to adapt to the culture that they were coming to. They looked down upon Sweden. They thought that the Swedish culture uh, and the Swedish um, way of living was false. And th that was a bit of an awakening to, uh, to me because I thought like, oh my God, I thought that everybody who came to Sweden wanted to be Swedish, wanted to um, live in the secular, open-minded culture that allows women to to take off their scarves, scarves, and hijabs without harassment. Like my mother, mm -hmm. you know, my mom is the yeah. kind of person who should have been moving to Sweden, but alas, everybody that I met in the refugee was completely against this. And I learned Swedish. I started working at uh, you know restaurants. I worked in um, hotels. I, I worked for a bit for two, three years. And during that time, I perfected my Swedish. And I started, I went to university and studied international migration and ethnic relations for a bit. But my mm -hmm. main focus was to perfect Swedish because I wanted to, to write in Swedish. I wanted to engage in Swedish politics. And I ended up doing that. That's phenomenal. Uh, you, you've, you've left your father out of this story because he also plays quite an important part, certainly from the the opening paragraph, which I read from your brother, that your father was was very much a, an Arab nationalist and someone who believed that Palestine uh, needed to win in a war against Israel, and that Palestine's position was was actually a position that all Muslims should should aspire to uh, fight for, to hold, um, and and that was completely different, it seems, to the opinion that you have now. Yes, I, I did grow up also believing in the Palestinian cause. Like I wrote in, in yesterday's post is that <clears throat> in the Middle East and the Arab world, there are two religions. There's Islam, and that is a very dominant religion that by law kills you if you do not um, adhere to it or if you criticize it or if you leave it. And the second religion is Palestine, uh, or as we call it, Al-Qadiyya Al-Falastiniya. Al-Qadiyya Al-Falastiniya, which means the Palestinian cause. That word, that sentence has a very strong ring to it because mm -hmm. it is not, Islam is kind of like you're giving culture and religion, but the Palestinian cause is a fight. It is kind of like many people are familiar with the word jihad, which means like the either internal or external fight to spread Islam and defend Islam. The Palestinian cause is, is seen from another lens. It's seen from the lens of the Jews who we hate uh, have mobilized themselves and they have attacked us and they have taken stolen our land and they they are they are they have a plan to take over all of our lands, corrupt our religion, corrupt our societies, destroy us. And that is more of a proactive religion where you have to fight back. You have to go. That, that's why Yemen is bombing. <laughs> that's why Yemen is bombing Israel right now, because Yemen is one of those countries who have been who has been one of the most pro Palestine. Whenever you enter the stores, whenever you enter supermarkets or any just normal stores in, in Yemen, there are Palestinian posters everywhere. Um so, yeah, I grew up with that. I grew up with my family's mentality. And then when I met, went to Sweden, I did not even believe in the Holocaust. I thought it was just my, like, just like my, my society says. It is, you know, a Jewish plot. Um, Propaganda, to, yeah. 
propaganda to gain sympathy, but no, they were not burned. And if they were burned, then that would have been a good thing. So uh, in Sweden, I started my journey into kind of cleaning myself from that and more like educating myself, really. And I did. I ended up educating. Well, before I came to Sweden, I had already left um, the, the Islamic conservative mindset. I had already you know, read books uh, by, you know, Richard Dawkins, Chris, Christopher Hitchens. I read books uh, into evolution, critical of the Yemeni, not Yemeni, the Islamic culture. And that kind of like cleaned my brain from for, for, from the, the attachment that I had to the culture. But I still went to Sweden with anti-Semitism. I still went to Sweden with kind of like a weird eye. So living in Sweden, I was able to clean that off. And three years, four years after being in Sweden, and after learning Sweden, I started writing about my experiences and about what I, where I lived, uh, what I grew up in, and all of that. I just I just want to stop on on this idea that there are two religions because I think it's quite a, a breakthrough concept. The first being Islam itself, which, as you say, is is in no doubt about what it means to be a Muslim and what it means to leave Islam, um, and and what it means to to convert to Islam. And there are very strict rules here, and it's not some soft thing like the Western world has this idea because Christianity is, you know, is light and 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 weak and not and particularly. And ref well reformed, but it's not particularly heavy-handed. And as religions go, Christianity seems to be kind of interpreted by every individual Christian in whatever way they prefer it to be, with no real dogma overarching or or or, or hierarchically extending itself down the chain. So, well, there was Islam dogma before. Sorry for interrupting. There was no, there, dogma. no, there was. You're right, and and obviously there was the Reformation, and there were all the. The, the things that have happened since the Protestant religion or the Protestant forms of, of Christianity have, have branched out and as it's gone all over the world. Um, and we should be grateful for those reforms because, you know, Catholicism 600 years ago was not a pleasant thing. It was Galileo didn't think so. And so many others, the victims of the conquistadors, the crusades, they would have said to you that this is a very violent and angry religion. Maybe Islam is there now. But the point I'm trying to make is that I think Islam is very clear about what it is and what it stands for, and it's not really negotiable. People in the West seem to think that it's just like the soft version of Christianity. And then this, this Palestinian cause, which seems, according to what you've explained now, to be a proxy war. It's kind of a thing that all Arab Muslims, certainly, but even Muslims beyond the Arab world, can get involved in and feel like they're participating in an existential struggle again against an an existential enemy and that if you are participating in this struggle that it somehow you know gives fuel to your your identity as an arab nationalist or as an arab muslim in particular do you think that's fair to say absolutely it's also important to note that and i've written a lot about this in swedish that um, normal, you know, normal non-conservative Muslims who move to the, to Europe, like say someone who just um, normally drinks alcohol in Saudi Arabia or Yemen secretly, mm. once they come to Europe, once they come to Sweden or Britain or the U.S., they turn conservative. They become more. They they attach themselves more to the religion, and the reason for that is. You read, like in Yemen, you read a lot about alcohol, you read about the kuffar, you read about how women who do not cover themselves are dirty. You read about all of these fantasy 
things that you're against, but you never see them. You know, woman in, in Yemen and Saudi Arabia and in, mm. in, all, in the vast majority of the Muslim world, you do not see your enemy in, in the books. You only hear about them. Once you move to Europe, once you move to, 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 the, to the U.S. and the West, you live within that society that you have learned to hate and hurt, uh, learned to, 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 to loathe. And you become active in your religion. You you know you make sure that your family, that the, your the, your daughter and your sisters do not um, become that way because they might end up in hell. The the alcohol is everywhere. So there there is the jihad, which is the struggle or the internal struggle. And with the with the Jews, you it, with the Jews and, and Israel, it's the same thing. Before the creation of the Israeli state. There was persecution and hatred towards Jews in all in every single Arab and Muslim country, but there was not this idea of we have to actively exterminate the Jews because yes, while they do attack attack us in our own societies, they're not well mobilized. They do not have their own armies. They do not have strength. They only work from the bottom down. But uh, once it's, the creation, it's, it's so it's so weird. I just want to stop you here for a second because. Again, going back to your journey to Sweden and and the journey of so many, I mean, the the the, the huge wave of Muslim immigration to Europe is already becoming Europe's big political question. Um, it it's happened individually within countries and within the EU, and some people are comfortable talking about, it and some people obviously are not. But why is there this this uh, resistance to assimilation? You know, you would think that people who'd moved from a place like Yemen, which is a hard country to live in, um, you, you think about people who would, who would flee wars in Iraq or in Syria. You think mm. about people like the Kurds in northern Iraq or, or, or like the, the, the people who are in Saudi Arabia perhaps being persecuted to this day by you know, strict Wahhabism or something. You would think those people would be embracing of the idea that they're in a society now which is free and where they can participate in that and enjoy the freedom that they were denied in the country that they've just fled from. And yet the sense, the need to belong is so great that they revert to those things they were taught when they were young. And they, and they become more religious, according to your interpretation. Hmm. Hmm. The, I, th I think it comes down to, I do believe that if the United Nations Alien Convention's definition of refugee was applied, and the people who did come to uh, Europe or allowed into uh, to Europe on refugee bases actually fulfilled the quota, which is a well-founded fear of persecution, then people would have assimilated. Because if you do have a well-founded fear of persecution in the Middle East, say you're an atheist who cannot, mm -hmm. you know, uh, fulfill your ex freedom, uh, freedom of expression, you cannot uh, exercise criticism of the state. If you're a journalist who really has a critical thought, critical mindset towards the culture, if you are a homosexual who would get killed by the by the by the state, if you were uh, someone who left Islam, if you were a Christian, if you were a Jew, if you have a well-founded fear of persecution and left the Middle East and came to Europe, the probability of you actually wanting to assimilate is very high. And this is something that I also see from my own experience is that most of my friends in, in Sweden who are well-assimilated, well-established, learn the language, love Sweden, are atheists, ex-Muslims, homosexuals, lesbians, women who have been 
almost killed by their family for leaving their hijab. Those are like my friends in, in Sweden, people who are mm. who actually do have a well-founded fear of persecution. I mean, the, the irony also is that the only country in the Middle East where you would have any rights in those groups you've just mentioned is Israel. Yep. Right? And Israel is uh, the only country where you'd have free expression, where you would be allowed to be an apostate, as as the term goes, for, for those who leave Islam. Um, so you, I'm assuming, have have adopted your new life, in inverted commas, and, and taken on a Swedish identity, but you've lost a lot along the way, and you've had to, to be prepared to sacrifice a lot. Um, and when I started this interview, I read that opening line from your blog, and I think this is really valuable information for people who are perhaps in a similar situation and circumstance. Maybe they're listening to this in some part of the world where you're not able to be free to express yourself. And you need to know what the cost of that is. Um, do you want to go into what you've lost? And then we can look at what you gained. Well, I, I do think that the, um, I, I've lost, well, when I started writing in Swedish about migration and integration around four years ago, um, many of my, two of my friends uh, started translating my writings and translating my tweets back then. And they know and they don't want to be friends with me anymore. And that that's the beginning of me, like the, the loss of, of uh, uh, the, the, the loss of, of, of as a price of freedom of speech. Um, but actually I do come from a very secular and open-minded family. So I never lost family or friends because of my, um, my mindset and my thinking actually my mother is is a very outspoken feminist and, and human rights activist so people mm. kind of thought well of course he's his mother's son of course he's <laughs> he, he rocks the boat but i i take it a bit too far according to them so that is so that's why like i never lost <clears throat> any of my family family members or closest friends because of my criticism towards islam criticism mm. towards the culture uh, most Muslims actually do agree that the, the, the Islamic culture is a failure, is that we, we, we technologically, scientifically, medicinally, we are failures. And they are very well aware of that. So when they see me saying that we need to change our mindset, we, we need to stop killing people for thinking differently, you'd have you know at least 30%, 40% of, of Muslims who say, yes, you're right. Uh, I would say the majority disagree, but I come from that enlightened part who wants to 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 have a reformation in the Islamic world. But the Palestine and Islam uh, Israel thing came as a shock to me, and that's why I wrote in my uh, last tweet that I came to the realization that Palestine is a religion, because in the Islamic world you have families disowning you for criticizing Islam or for leaving the religion. And I never really had family members, you know, doing that to me because I come from an enlightened family. Mm. But it turns out that Israel and Palestine is another religion, a deeper religion, I would say, because that's where my brother drew a line. And he said, if you go there, if you continue to support the Israelis and the Israeli state, then you're, you're no longer my brother. He never said that when I criticized Islam and I criticized the, the Islamic culture. So... I do think that 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 has made me fall into a realization of of how anti-Semitism. Well, I've always known that anti-Semitism is is deep, runs deep in our blood in the, in the Arabian culture. I mean, you grew up in mosques that repeatedly keep saying that you, we have to destroy Israel, we have to kill the Jews, 
Um, so I, I didn't know that that ran so deep in my family's blood. Like I keep telling my family members, but you know, we've learned through my mother to be critical towards the culture that that we mm. that we live in. But why is this certain thing off? You know, off limits. Yeah. And and they say that is, Israel is committing a genocide, and that's all they, they they that's all the information that they that they they have to give me for why they're cutting ties with me and um yeah it's 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 sad and i the 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 funny well it's not so funny but it's it's kind of funny as well but i i do tell my brother and and, and my family and my friends is that i am not even voicing uh, any support uh towards the war right now i am not saying that you know israel has to continue bombing gaza i say that Things like is Israel has to exterminate Hamas. I don't know how. You know, I mm. I, I truly do not believe that the current bombing toward uh, that's happening is going to eradicate Hamas completely. I think actually the, quite the opposite. I think Hamas is going to gain so much more support in Palestine, like in the West Bank. So I don't know what the way, the perfect way. I could be wrong as well. It it could be mm. a way to subjugate uh, Hamas and make Palestinians realize that they need to um, de-radicalize. But I, well, I, I don't you're, know. You're going to have a tough time exterminating an idea. And that's really part of the problem is that Hamas is an idea. But when you when you talk about how Israel must exterminate Hamas, I mean, it's not even, we're not even talking about the Middle East here. I live in a country on the southern tip of Africa where our government just hosted a Hamas delegation who came to visit South Africa. Now, most governments in the world wouldn't touch Hamas with a 10-inch pole, I mean, a 20-foot pole with a, with a health inspector on the other end because they're such odious people. But our government seems to be very happy to cozy up to them. And it's that kind of thing that really confounds me because, first of all, I don't believe that there's anyone in our government who even understands what's happening in the Middle East. I think they're choosing to associate with what they believe is some kind of brotherly, revolutionary movement, some sort of liberation struggle, which is far away, but has echoes of what they went through here in South Africa um, during a much more uh, obviously moral struggle against racism, effectively. But it strikes me as odd that it, it has spread beyond the Arab world. It's spread beyond, you know, just places like Yemen, where it, it, it's more understandable to me. Do you find that odd as well? It is odd, but I have bad news. Uh, South Africa is not the only country that has kind of like been very cuddly with Hamas, I would say. Mm. Sweden has been. Yeah. Uh, and this is something that has not come out in international media. I think I'm going to write something about it sooner or later. But our Social Democratic Party, which is the leading political party in Sweden, they have run, they have run the, Sweden for the past, 90 years, I think I could be wrong. Um, they've only had, I think, around eight years where they, they lost the elections in the past 90 years or so. They have um, a parliamentarian, his name is Jamal al Hajj, uh, and Jamal al Hajj is Palestinian. He has been seen um, in different uh, Hamas conferences, he, he's, he attended a Hamas conference even though the political party told him not to attend the, the, the conference, he still attended it. And he was seen uh, doing, you know, making a speech while there are Hamas flags behind him. 
He has been seen, and there have been pictures taken of him hugging a Hamas leader. Uh, and all of this has been documented, and the Social Democratic Party has still not let go of him. This is this is one of those topics that is ongoing in Sweden. Why is the Social Democratic wow. Party, the leading party in Sweden, not letting go of this guy who clearly has ties with Hamas, clearly sympathizes with them? When well, he was can, can I ask you something? Uh, you know, this is something that confounds and 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 completely confuses me. Um, we talked about the lack of assimilation by certain conservative Muslims in in Europe, but there's a there's a corollary to that. There's another story, which is the equal and opposite story, and that is that white Western Europeans, particularly in left leaning and liberal countries like Sweden, have this idea that the most important virtue they can have is tolerance and acceptance and this welcoming attitude. And it's probably because they're not entirely sure what their culture is. And, you know, we can talk about which cultures are dominant, which are, which are less so. But it turns out that places like Sweden don't actually know what they stand for. And this is probably part of the problem for them in why they've allowed themselves to be I suppose, uh, uh, abused culturally to be subsumed into, I mean, there's certain parts of Sweden, you, you know this better than me, there's certain towns and cities where there isn't Swedish spoken, mm. Arabic is spoken. There are certain places where Swedish women are told not to go. And this is all very much hush-hush. You know, we don't talk about this in public because the Swedish would hate to be seen as being intolerant. But the reality is that Parts of their country have completely been overrun by a culture that isn't from there, that isn't native to Sweden, that isn't the culture that Swedish people recognize in any way. And they've let it happen, which is on them. It's not on the Muslim populations who've come in and have changed this because there has been resistance and they managed to stand up to it. It's just steamrolled right over the Swedes. Mm. Yeah, you're sadly right there. Um if you take the the subway in Stockholm from Södermalm, which is like the white hipster, well, Östermalm, the, the the white hipster parts of Stockholm, yes. a fifteen minute ride to Rinkeby, and you're in Makadisha or Somalia, and these two the these two worlds rarely, if they ever meet. And you're right. I think I think in Sweden's case, they 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 exotify the idea of multiculturalism. They do not want to, to face the fact that it is problematic. Um, you know, I, I was on the, on the Swedish television like two years ago debating multiculturalism. And mm. there was this woman in front of me, we were debating, and I told her multiculturalism does not work because we're in the, from the culture that I come from, uh, we kill LGBTQ people, we kill atheists, we kill free thinkers. So... Once that arrives here, um, you can't, it does not work. People are going, many of these people are going to want to continue on this road. And you know what her reply is? Her reply was, well, actually, Lai, we have societies in Europe like Poland and Hungary that are anti-woman, that are anti-LGBTQ people. I, I swear I was so in shock at her response and, and, and the moderator just went on. I, I felt so gas lit. Like, are you mm -hmm. freaking kidding me? Do, do you have yeah. no idea what, what 
I just told you, like, we kill these people. We kill women. We kill people who are yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you know, Muslims are not hiding the ball in these conservative uh, Muslim countries. This equivocation, and to go back to Israel for a second, because this is where I think you've been absolutely uh, honest and astonishingly brave, um, to say, you know, because there's this idea that there's both sides. You know, you, if you're a good journalist or a good person, you'll look at it from both sides. And, you know, I hear people who argue with me on social media. I don't know if I could call all of them friends, but certainly some of them are people who I, I've known for a long time say to me, oh, no, but what Israel's doing now when they bomb Gaza by trying to get rid of Hamas, that is genocidal. So actually what happened on October the 7th is the same. How do you even react to a person who really genuinely believes that? I mean, you could tell them the truth, but there's a high chance that they're just going to look past the truth. And the truth is that Israel targets and wants to kill terrorists, the terrorists that want to kill them. That's their main target. I have met IDF soldiers who are Muslim, who are Bedouins, who are Iraqis, who come from the same blood and the same culture of these same people that they're accusing of wanting to kill. And mm -hmm. Hamas wants to kill every single Jew. So what? not just Jews, Israelis as well. So the definition of genocide is ha also a part of the definition of genocide is having the intention of ethnically cleansing uh, an ethnic group. Um, Israel does not have that intention. They want if 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 wanting to eradicate eradicate a terrorist group is genocide, then yes, Israel has that intention. But but that's not the definition of genocide. Genocide is wanting to eradicate and kill a large number of people. That is what Hamas wants to do. So I say that the, uh, uh, what happened on October the, October the 7th was a genocide. What is happening right now is not a genocide. It is the attempt to eradicate a terrorist group that hides under tunnels, that uses, that has no respect or value of human life, uses their own humans as shields, kills their own people, want to die. I was talking to police, uh, a police officer in Israel. And she was telling me when we were standing on the same street where the Hamas um, truck came in with all their soldiers, mm -hmm. they all ran, like all the police officers started running into the, the, the police station. That police station, by the way, right now does not exist. It has mm -hmm. been destroyed to the ground because of the fight that happened there between the Hamas soldiers and them. And the police officers were telling us that this is not a normal enemy. You cannot, the way you're not equipped, you cannot fight with someone who wants to die because to them, they don't care about losing their lives. They want to be killed. So mm. they're going to start running right at you without any fear because if you shoot them, if you kill them, they go to heaven. That's that's how Hamas fights. While, while the Israeli uh, police officers, which one of them was Lebanese, by the way, when when they fight, when they try to to fight against Hamas, they want to protect their lives as well. That is not how Hamas fights. This this very distinction is something that many people who engage in this debate do not understand or or do not want to actually fathom. Well, I mean, isn't it is Ismail Haniyeh, who's the the nominal leader of Hamas, who said. You love life. We love death. 
you know, you, you, you can't come to terms with someone like that because they're actually not in it for this game. They're not following our rules of engagement. They're in it for the, the afterlife. And, and that's a very different goal. And, and therefore, life is meaningless. And the life of your children or, your, or your, your, your wife or whoever else, if they are useful as a human shield for the ultimate struggle that will get all of you into heaven, then they're just a meat vehicle for your cause. And that's very different to trying not to kill women and children, which it appears by all evidence available, most of it actually sent through by Gazans, that Israel does absolutely everything it can to spare humans, particularly civilians, in a war like this. And Hamas has exactly the opposite point of view. Their whole purpose is to kill as many civilians as possible. Right. I think another another issue that, that that is at hand, and I do think that my Israeli friends need to also admit this, is that mm-hmm. the Israeli state and Israeli soldiers and Israeli policemen are also capable of making mistakes. Of course, but, and sometimes there might be a complete uh, maniac among them, you know? They, right. They exist. They're and, bad and people. Yes, and, and these mistakes are not definitive or defining of of the entire Israeli state, but they need to be admitted. And these mistakes, like, so an example, um, the day that I left Israel, so three days ago, there was a terror attack. And um, so uh, some terrorists went out and they started shooting everybody. Uh, I think they killed three people. And then... um, uh, an Arab ha- who was who was armed went and he neutralized these terrorists. He killed one of them, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was holding the gun uh, after he 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 killed these people. Now the police officers came after the 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 the, the fight happened, and they saw this guy who was um, the terrorist. They saw dead bodies. They come in and they see this guy who's an Arab. And he had a gun, he put the gun down, and then he raised his hands. Mm. What happened was the Israeli police officer killed this Arab who had his hands raised, right? Now, that was a a huge mistake because even Mm. if you have a terrorist and who, who just killed people and they raised their hands... And he was actually screaming, I'm Israeli, I'm Israeli. This guy who killed the, the, the Palestinians. Mm. You're not supposed to shoot them dead. You right. know, if anything, if you're if you're panicking and you feel like there's a major threat, you shoot them in their feet. You try to like deflect the, the problem rather than just exterminating that person. Yeah. So yeah. so now this this soldier or, or police, I think it was a police officer who killed the this innocent guy is going to be put on trial and they're probably going to you know be sentenced or something of that sort mm-hmm. because in the, the the in Israel in this war in this fight there is a rule of law where when mistakes are made you get persecuted prosecuted there is right. a strong state of law that serves justice this very concept of justice and democracy uh, does not exist on the, on the Palestinian side. On the Palestinian well, side, there's just this fervent of destruction of the Israeli state, no matter what the price is, no matter, there's no, oh, if you kill someone, that's wrong. No, 
th that that very concept is very first of all it's very western because even mm -hmm. if you remove this conflict and you go to yemen or you go to saudi arabia killing apostates killing people who are different who 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 are critical who, who criticize allah and muhammad is justified so, so the, 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 yeah. you have a meeting of two vastly different cultures, a reformed culture that has gone through enlightenment, which is also the Israeli culture, but the, the, the Arab Islamic culture is still in, in the depth of the Dark Ages. What is Palestine like? I mean, I don't know if you've been there or not. I don't know if you've got friends who live in Palestine because, again, people have this idea that the one is this oppressed state that is put upon by Israel, that everything they try to do, Israel squashes, they've made it impossible. It's power, you know, it's the oppressor and oppressed. Um, what what is what is Palestine really like? And what is Gaza like from the, the people that you know who are on the ground there? You probably know more about it than me. So so give me a, an idea of what happens there. You know, the <laughs> It is said that Palestine is, or Gaza, let's just not talk about the West Bank, but Palestine, Gaza, is right. an open-air open, open air prison, a concentration yes. camp. Right. Now, there are many videos that show you, before the war, before the 7th of October, how life in Gaza was. Have you seen any of these videos? I've seen some of them. I mean, you know, thanks to the, the, the internet, you, you're now able to see stuff that maybe you wouldn't have seen before. But I mean, a lot of these things are being posted. You know, there are people inside of Gaza who who let us know um, what exactly was happening on the 7th of October because they were proud of what they were doing. Hamas people I'm talking about, they were the ones posting this stuff. You know, people who claim that it's Israeli propaganda. I have to remind them that these are the actual terrorists who gave us the greatest insight. They were showing us how they killed people. Uh, they wanted us to see. Um, and, and, and obviously, you're talking about before that, where people were showing us what life was like in, in Gaza. It doesn't look like a very fun place. Well, life before the 7th of October, from the evidence that I've seen, is not the horrible open, open concentration camp that people make it seem out to be. What did you see? Well, what I have, I wanted to go into Gaza, but I mm. after the war, but I couldn't because of obvious reasons. Yeah. But the the first hand accounts that I've had is that before, and not just first hand accounts, before the war, you had European citizens from Sweden, Britain, France, all around the Europe, who leave their homes like literally leave Europe, you know, the first world, the developed, mm. secular, open-minded welfare states, yeah. and they move to Gaza, the open-air concentration camp. Now, does that make any sense to you that someone would leave Sweden and Stockholm with welfare, with, with, you know, security, safety, and move to a concentration camp and an open-air uh, prison? That does not make any sense to you, to me. There's a lot about this thing that doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> That's one. The second thing is that life in Gaza was not perfect. It was not perfect due to mostly economic um, economic uh, reasons. They don't have an airport. That you could say that Gaza was not a perfect state. It did, you know, they 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 don't have the same rights in terms of flying, in terms of borders. But it's just the same ca same case in Yemen. 
you know, mm. in Yemen during the past 10 years before the ceasefire with Saudi Arabia, the airports were closed, you know, from, from, right. from that kind of aspect, Gaza is, is, does not have the same living conditions as more stable countries and cities in the world. But what's brewing under that, many people will say that that's oppression or an oppression that is being practiced by Israel, even though mm -hmm. I don't see how that's Israel's oppression when tens of thousands of Gazans were allowed into Israel to work and make four times more money that they were making in Gaza. Right. And, and many of those people were the uh, were the artifacts and the masterminds before, behind the 7th of October because they're the ones who leaked the information. They're the ones who drew the maps of, of these villages. They're the ones who who gave all the intel to, to mm -hmm. Hamas to, to, to kill the people who invited them into their homes and into their companies. So Gaza before the war was not the nightmare that it was. The, 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 what was not the nightmare that the, the, the Palestinians will try to make you think that it was. Hamas was, I do think that Hamas's authority over um, Gaza reminds me a lot of the Houthis' authority in, in, in Yemen, where they have these insane religious conservative values, where they have their... because. Hamas in, in uh, Hamas Hamas's biggest enemy is the Jews in the United States of America. In uh, in Yemen, you also have the same thing, where the Houthis, who also took over the north northern part of Yemen, and they're not recognized by the international community, their mm. biggest op opponents and enemies are also um, the United States and Israel, to the point that their logo, the the Houthis logo in Yemen is death to America, death to Israel, curse, to, curse upon the Jews, may Islam win. That's their actual logo. And so, so I, if I would circle back to what we were talking about a bit earlier, I do think that in the, the, the Islamic culture and the Islamic world and, and the Arab world has failed, especially when you compare it to the Western world. And when you fail, you have to have something or someone to blame your failures and misfortunes on. Right. And what's happening in Gaza and in the West Bank and in the Arab world is that we successfully, instead of successfully advancing in sciences, we're successfully advancing in the blame game where we blame the West and Israel for our misfortunes. Where when in reality, before we even, before the creation of Israel, before the, the wars between the United States and Afghanistan and their proxy wars, we were just as, you know, regressive as we were right now, as we are right now. So the, the, there is no connection there. The, the West and Israel has most certainly, more certainly, um, uh, um, deteriorated the situation in the Middle East. At mm. the same time, they have helped us in many ways so in Yemen, for example, you have numerous of hospitals that are the British hospital, the German hospital, which, you know, a part of the uh, colonialism, but they are our most well-established hospitals. So every single local hospital in Yemen, mm -hmm. if it is a Yemeni hospital, you avoid it. You try to go to the expensive German and, and, and British hospitals that were built by the Brits. So 
there there are two aspects there. there there's a positive and there's a negative that has come from the west but we focus on the negative and we try to blame our misfortune on that there's a great book called the, the islam and the, and, the and the west and the west does that for you a lot of the time too because people in the west are so terrified of being called oppressors colonialists racists um bigots islamophobe um, that they will do anything. They will do every kind of mental and and spiritual and emotional gymnastics to get out of those things. And we'll we'll talk about Islamophobia in a minute because I know you've got very strong feelings about that word. But to finish your thought here, in in Yemen, uh, you you still have family who are there now. I said, yeah, I do. And and how how is life in Yemen as compared to you know before we even get into Palestine? I mean, this is where your own family and friends are. Uh, what is life like there, and who are these Houthis that everybody's talking about? Well, how is Yemen like before? Well, one of the first uh, videos that I made that went viral was specifically touching upon the idea that you see hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Arabs and Muslims going around, going about mm. and protesting on streets when they never did that for Yemen. Yes. When Saudi Arabia and, and Iran were having their proxy war, and eight countries was backing Saudi Arabia, uh, resulting in the death of almost 400,000 Yemenis, where mm -hmm. more than 10 million children in Yemen don't have anything to eat. 10 million. 10 million children. You didn't more have the magic ingredient. Your magic ingredient is Jews. If you'd had Jews involved, maybe they would have cared more, right? And that's exactly what I said. Is that how, If it was the Jews who, who were you know, behind this war, <clears throat> then the entire Arab and Muslim world would have awake awaken a bigger revolution than the mm -hmm. one that we see right now but because they were not jews no one gives a goddamn right. and uh so i i said that and the 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 situation in yemen is dire it's always been dire um it's the prices of the food are escalating um salaries are not being paid more than 75% of the population is star not starving, but they live under poverty. The, the infrastructure of the country and of, of the, especially the northern, northern part of Yemen is completely dismantled and destroyed. <clears throat> there is no sense of security. There, there is no rule of law. The Houthis, which is a Shia sect, has taken over and they have started applying all, the, all their insane Stone Age practices. So if you're if you're related to Prophet Muhammad, you get taxes from people who are not related to Prophet Muhammad. Which should excite me because my family has, you know, um, is related to Prophet Muhammad, <laughs> but it doesn't excite me because it's uh, it's Stone Age traditions that have destroyed the Middle East for centuries. So Ye Yemen, no one cares about this, of course. Um, you you will not see protests, you will not see seminars about Yemen by the same people now who are going about hating Jewish people, um, and I, I think that's also has been driving my, uh, not ap apathy, but like kind of like, why aren't you voicing your concern about Gaza and the oppression? Why the, f sorry, I was going to say fuck. Well, you can, you can hear. <laughs> why the fuck were you, were you silent when my people, millions of my own people were getting killed? Millions right. of my people were starving. You did not say a single word. So, I did so, not so that, that, that pissed you off on a on a personal level because I've I've used that argument sometimes with people who are hugely passionate about Gaza and Palestine 
And then they say, well, it's because my co-religionists, you know, the other Muslims are being being killed by these Jews. And then I say to them, well, you didn't do anything with Yemen. You didn't do anything in Iraq. You didn't do anything in Syria. You And not a person took to the streets in protest. Why are they performing in this case? Is it just pure anti-Semitism? Is that it? Yes. Right. Yes. Um, I, I did say something about why... Um, well, I think in in one of my, one of the videos or something, it was about how why didn't anybody go out and condemn? No, I I, I think it was a post that I posted a few days ago where mm -hmm. I said the Muslim community never went out to condemn ISIS, and mm -hmm. when ISIS was representing Islam, they were saying this is the true Islam, and we slaughter right. people, and two billion people were just at home watching Muslims saying, yeah, well, we're not gonna engage about this. We're not going to say no we don't care we you know the the islamic spirit of of revolt and protest and condemning just was not there mm. and um which says a lot about the pacifism and and the mainstream doctrine of islam but uh anyway so someone commented and they put, referred to an article um of a protest, a Shia protest um, that happened condemning ISIS and saying that ISIS does not represent Islam. Now, the interesting part about this is that th this person was telling me, you're wrong. Muslims did go out and protest against uh, ISIS. Now, the interesting thing is that mm -hmm. when you look at the article and you see what happened, it was merely 1,000 or 2,000 people on the much much less i'm sorry that was much i was being generous there and out of two billion it was in 2017 so two years after the the isis bargage and more than that it was a shia protest in ashura which is the shia's you know uh, christmas you could say yeah. they were going out doing just what they do in ashura and they happen to have signs saying that, fuck, you know, ISIS can go to hell. They're not the real Islam. Now, these same people usually go out and protest against the Sunnis and against Saudi Arabia on any given day. It was not the Muslims going out and protesting against ISIS representing Islam. So I, I think that is one of the most daunting facts and 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 and, and realities about the Islamic world is this. They let Islam get represented by ISIS without saying a single word. And I, I do think that one of, a part of my activism is trying to say that I want to see the Muslims go out on the streets and have the same kind of like outrage condemning ISIS, condemning the Saudi Arabian state. We see this in the Iranians, the Iranian, the secular Iranians in Sweden and in Europe and in the West. They're the most anti-Islamism groups in the world. And they condemned these atrocities. They, when in Sweden there was this uh, a seminar held in Stockholm by the by the Iranians in a mosque, a radical mosque, mm -hmm. and I went inside. And when I went inside, like I, I was, I'm not like I wouldn't say I was. I'm famous in, in Sweden, but like people who are activists and engage in politics do know of me. So when I went into this mosque. Um, People know me, so they were like, oh, you're the critic of Islam. Mm. Uh, so th they was like, come here, we're going to sit you somewhere. They sat me somewhere, and they had someone from their people sit next to me to make sure that I was not recording, that I was not oh, taking wow. pictures, that I was not doing anything. 
and they knew they couldn't harm me <clears throat> because if they did harm me, <clears throat> then then hell will. <laughs> then, like you know, the, the Swedish society would stand on you know, oh, Ahmed got killed just for entering a mosque, so they know that they can't do anything to me. But wow. um, the, the, so like in front of this mosque, like when I was entering the mosque, there were hundreds of Iranians protesting against the mosque. They had some, this is before the Iranian revolution of you know against the the hijab. This is yes. in 2018 or 2019, I think. So there, mm -hmm. hundreds of Iranians were in front of this mosque protesting against it, telling them to go back home, telling them that their state is a terrorist state. So, wow. that, so there are these Iranians and the people who have actually lived through Islamism, lived through right. the oppression, who do not want it in the West. Those are the people who you will see condemning. The Sunnis and the vast majorities of the Muslims will stay silent, and they will only go out to protest when they want to voice their anti-Semitism. So why do you think it is that conservative Muslims, or, or rather, let's say, uh, radical Islamists, rather than just conservative Muslims, because they're different categories here, and, and again, Islam is not monolithic. Uh, why is it that more open-minded, liberal, and moderate is the word that people in the West like to use, Muslims, don't receive nearly the amount of attention that the radicals receive. And you could, you could say this about many societies, but there seems to be, especially in Western media, a complete denial that these people even exist. I mean, it's hard for people like you, if it wasn't for X, for Twitter. Uh, I don't think that uh, you know the TV channels and the radio stations and the newspapers are lining up to get moderate Muslim opinions. And that seems odd to me because they always say when something terrible happens in the world, oh, but the moderates, you know, not all Muslims are, are mad terrorists who want to spread their religion by the sword. And you know, Islam is not dangerous. It's the religion of peace. So listen to the moderates. But we, we struggle to hear the voices of the moderates. Why is that? Well, because, like you said, the, if you're going to call them moderates, <laughs> yeah. um, I, I'm not a moderate Muslim. I You could call me in, well, the vast majority of Muslims do call me on X and everywhere that I'm an ex-Muslim and I'm, I'm an apostate. Well, right. I, I think it's the the terminology in in Islam is so different from like Judaism because in Judaism, if you don't, if you're not a religious Jew, you're still a Jew because you're an ethnic Jew. Right. Uh, so, so in Islam, you have completely different terminologies. If you say, if you criticize Islam, if you criticize Allah, if you say. Allah is a piece of shit, but I still love him because he created everything. If you say that about, you know, in Christianity or in Judaism, people will look weirdly at you, but you would still be, you know, a Jew or a Christian, right? Mm. You have the right to look at religion the ex any way you want it. Now, because you, if you say anything critical of Islam, if you say that Islam is not the real book, is not Islam, it's not the book of God. Islam is just that. No, the Quran is not the book of God. It's mm. just a book of metaphors and and you know, fables, stories, stories yeah. exactly. You're immediately an ex-Muslim. You're a kafir. You're a murtad. You are, you know, you should be killed in in the in most parts in in the Middle East and Muslim the Muslim world. Mm. So because of that, I am defined as an ex-Muslim, even though if you ask me, I would define myself as a secular reformist Muslim.
but Muslims will not agree to that. They will not. They will say that I'm an ex-Muslim, that I'm a kafir, and and I, I'm fine with that. I, I'm not going to sit here and you know debate terminology and 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 ter debate what word to use to define myself. I come from this culture, and I wanted to reform, and I want to I wanted to change. And I do think this confusion regarding moderate Muslim and radical Muslim and and mm. is also behind this fear because. People are afraid of coming out and doing what I'm doing because they would get, you know, harassed. They would get truckloads of death threats, which is which I'm getting. So a lot of people are scared of that. I'm not scared of it. Like, like I I, I write, you know, I lived in for 20 years in Yemen, being uh, being scared. So I'm not gonna. Yeah. And I've been vocal. I've been extremely vocal for the past five years. I've, right. I say every I've said everything that I've been saying in in Swedish but in different ways. And um, but now that I'm saying it in English I'm getting like uh, more people who speak English want to talk to me and want to hear what I'm saying but I've been saying this for 5 years and I'm not scared. I'm not going to be silent. I I I'm actually uh, going to be doing this in Arabic as well sooner or later. And right. the, the reason, the main reason that I've actually been doing this in Swedish is because I wanted to perfect my Swedish. I did not want to go on, you know, social media and write in English. And because if I focused on English, then my Swedish would not have gotten better. So I right. wanted, to, I wanted to become like a, uh, to speak Swedish perfectly. And that's why I wrote and I spoke in Swedish the whole time. I wanted to assimilate. But now we're like 10 years later when I feel like my Swedish has gotten, no, I wouldn't say perfect, but it's borderline fluent. I, I write my own uh, articles in Swedish. So now I can venture into English and like, you know, um, take the fights into the English speaking uh, world. So, and I'm happy that a lot of people are want to listen to what I'm saying. I mean, it, it's crazy. I did not expect it to, to happen this way, but in the past two, one month or six weeks, I've gotten a hundred thousand new followers on X and 60,000, 60,000 followers on TikTok, which says that there is a major drought for people like myself. I mean, you you have people like Ian Hersey, but Ian Hersey is not as vocal as she should be. Yeah. I'm kind In of fact, like, I think I'm, she's just. Uh, I think Ian Hersey just has recently converted to Christianity, among other things. But she's been a very outspoken critic of Somali practices like female genital mutilation and you know the the more egregious parts of of islamism she's been very vocal and i think she's been extremely brave and also we need to hear more women like your mother from that part of the world you know who have things to say because i just want to read to to everybody who doesn't know you and this will probably give them the motivation to follow you even if they disagree completely you said dear muslims the world is scared of us the world is laughing at us the world is worried about us there are legitimate reasons for their worry that we can't keep denying it is time for us to flush the word Islamophobia down the toilet, start looking in the mirror and ask ourselves, how did we get here? How come the largest and most thriving terrorist organizations in the world are Muslim? How come terrorists successfully use Islam to mobilize thousands of Muslims? What is the problem with our leaders, our imams, and our religion? Why do we keep repeating these Stone Age traditions that have failed us and continue to fail us? The world has left us behind. 1,400 years of us stuck debating which is the correct sect what is the correct interpretation? Who is a real Muslim? How can we convince people to become Muslims? 
Why on earth would anyone want to become Muslim today? They're all scared of us. They're laughing at us. They're worried about us. Delete Israel and the West from the world, and we would still be as ignorant as we are. We would be, still be stabbing each other. Stop blaming them and look to yourself instead. The enemy is not out there. The enemy is within. Um, chief among the, the observations that people may have about that very, very powerful letter is this idea that you think that the word Islamophobia isn't as relevant as some people will say it is. Just in America, uh, two weeks ago, the White House issued statements against Islamophobia. Do you think this is a red herring? I, I think like, like um, just like racism, the word racism, like racism. Okay, there's a difference between racism and Islamophobia. But the point sure. that I was going to make is that like the word racism, racism exists and it's horrid and it's terrible and it should not exist and we should fight it. But the word racism and racist is just, you know, has been beaten to death and not in val for valid reasons. You could say like everything that I've been saying in, the, in, in during this pod, podcast could be mm. labeled racist by a lot of people. And it's, Oh, they will. There'll be people who will trust me. <laughs> yeah. And it's absolutely not true. And it's the same thing with Islamophobia, but here's the thing is I, I use two different words. There's Islamophobia, which is valid, which is great, which is rational because fearing religion, when a religion is oppressive, when a religion kills you for criticizing it, it's rational. Like people say constantly, phobia is something that's it's an irrational fear, but it's 100% rational, necessary even, to be scared of something that wants to kill you for criticizing it. So no, be, it's in the word, Islamophobia. So it's like mm. the fear, the irrational fear of Islam. There's no such thing as an irrational fear of Islam. There's only a rational fear of Islam. Now, the word that I, sorry, the word that I uh, advise people to use instead, which would be more valid, which would, which, which actually would be more real and make more sense, and I use it, is Muslim phobia, because that brings it to the people. That would be the irrational fear of Muslims. Mm -hmm. They're rational, you know, just you see any person who's a Muslim or says they're Muslim, you immediately just uh, feel like, oh, my God, this person might kill me. Now, that's quite irrational because mm -hmm. there are two billion Muslims in the world. But even there, like. So it, the Pew Research uh, statistics show that more than half of Muslims have ra radical views and ideas. So if you're homosexual then you should be Muslim phobic, meaning that you should be scared, not scared, but you should avoid Islamic circles because there is a high chance that that would not go great for you. No. Um, I, I have a, 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 one of my closest friends. This is also one of my awakenings. He in uh, Rosengård is Malmo. Malmo is the southern city of, of in Sweden, and it's like the, the most Muslim populated. Mm. There was a party. We went to the same university, Malmo University, and then he we were going to a party in Rosengård, which is like the, the most Muslim po populated area. So I invited him, like, hey, come to the student party in this in Rosengård. Yeah. <clears throat> and he told me, Luai, there are a thousand reasons that I would get killed there. First of all, I'm blonde. Second of all, I'm gay. 
And that, that was actually one of the saddest things that I've heard in my life because mm. you're Swedish. This is your country. And you're telling me you're not going to come to a party because you're scared of getting harassed or killed in your own place. Well, he actually, to be honest, he didn't say killed. He said I would get like beaten or, or, or it would be the end of me. But I don't think he meant he would get killed. But in that area, there is a hatred towards blonde Swedes. And he said that he would, you know, that it would be the end of him also because he's gay and he's scared yeah. of these areas. And now this guy is Islamophobic because he's scared of Islam, but he's also Muslimphobic because he he believes or he knows that the Islamic community is not accepting of him being homosexual. So right. he has he has every right to be both Islamophobic and Muslimphobic. Now, if you're not gay. If the chances of you being persecuted, if you're not someone who criticizes Islam like I do, if you're not someone who's, if you're a friend of Islam and Muslims, mm. you have the right to be, uh, you, you don't have the right to be Muslimphobic or Islamophobic. Um, or, you, I mean, I don't, I'm not saying you don't have the right to be, but the terminology is important because Muslimphobia and Islamophobia are two different things. There's the right. religion and there's the people. And this is a t distinction that people have to, to, to take into accountability because I don't think that Muslim phobia is, is, is a good thing. I think fearing and being afraid or hating or discriminating Muslims is not a good thing. It is bad. It is like racism. It is in the same right. pattern of racism and anti-Semitism, prejudices, you know, being fear. Mm. Unless you're gay. Unless you're gay. Unless you're an Islam critic. If you're an Islam critic, then you are you know, under a lot of scrutiny, you could get killed, you could get bullied, you could get hurt. So, and I stand by that. But I do think like when, when it comes to legislation, using the word Islamophobia is insidious because it is giving Islam, which by the way, the literal word Islam means subjugation. Right. Subjugation to Islam. To God. Yeah. To God, to Allah. So, the very idea of a Western state using the word Islamophobia legitimately instead of Muslim phobia tells you that it's not just the Muslims who are a part of, of, of the society, but Islam, which is also political ideology. So right. Westerners, I, I'm done with, with leftist Westerners. You know, it's the same people like leftist Westerners have no idea of the outside world than the little tiny white mm -hmm. villages they live in so when they call me right-wing fascist islamophobic racist even nazis there have there have been leftist westerners who hear me talk about islam and say that i'm nazi so wow. I, I i i i don't care and i don't want to care and i don't engage or negotiate with 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 ignorant people but when it comes to negotiating with islam and muslims i do that because i feel it is my my plight I want my community to get better, to, to evolve, to move past the, sh the threshold of ignorance that has been tainted by the, the culture and the religion that we can't seem to let go of. So it is my plight and duty to, to argue and, and, and engage with the Muslim community and, and stuff. I do also like when I talk to the West, like uh, I have a video that I'm working on. Well, I have a lot of videos that I'm working on, but one of them is, starts by saying, dear West, <laughs> I, I don't have I don't have any slides of hope of changing the minds of leftists because most of them are just a lost cause, just like Hamas. 
Yeah, I, I, I kind of feel that <clears throat> when people are so steeped in it, and you said that the Palestinian cause has become a religion, I feel like leftism has replaced uh, Christianity in, in, in many secular minds. And, and, you know, leftism, wokeism, this idea of, you know, uh, whether it's Marxism of a kind, it's kind of taken up the God-shaped hole in some people's lives. And again, you're, you're reduced to having quasi-religious arguments with people who don't want to hear about rational ideas. They don't want to hear about facts. They don't want to have debates. If you don't agree with them, you are kafir, as you say. You know? Can't, mm. can't have those discussions. So there's no point in trying to uh, waste your breath or your energy on people who are already of the opinion that you're just evil because of your point of view. Yeah, and I think it co it goes back to the, what uh, Ian Hersey was writing about, where she she's like, we cannot use secular tools to fight against such a dominant religion as Islam. What mm -hmm. we have to use is Christianity. Uh, I take, I mean, I understand where she's coming from, because like you say, uh, um, leftism, or I would say feminism, equality, welcome refugees, green energy, uh, climate change, <laughs> those are all the new religion. You know, they, they have yeah. come to fill the void that Christianity has left in Sweden and right. Western Europe. And I, I, I don't know how to feel about that. I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to preach something I don't know. What I do think is that I think maybe if, if nationalism, but not, you know, ethno-nationalism, there's a huge difference between cultural nationalism and ethno-nationalism. I think cultural natural nationalism mm -hmm. could have saved Sweden and Europe from the demise that they find themselves in right now. Because if you, in 2007 or like a long time ago, no, I think 2009, yeah. the, the leading social democratic party in Sweden said literally this, um, you immigrants, you have a culture, you have something to hold on to. We Swedes, we don't have anything. Right. We only we only have meatballs. She she said something <laughs> that's literally like that. And then you had another the prime minister Frederick Reinfeldt literally said this. Um uh, the uh, Swedish Swedish being a Swede or Swedishism, if you could say Swedishism. Swedishness, it, yeah. Swedishness is barbarian. All the modernism that we have in Sweden has come from outside. So for the past 20, 30 wow. years, there has been a, a loathing and, and self-hatred and oikphobia within the Western culture, which has said that we need to bring in other cultures that will enrich us and make us something because we are nothing. That's it's, that it's, has it's almost, you know, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's almost like uh, white Western civilization, if you could put it in those terms. Um and it's 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 a very peculiar thing. I've seen it even here in South Africa. There's such a, it's almost like a a, a masochism. It's like a, um, the more you can kind of denigrate yourself, your history, your culture, the more acceptable you will find yourself in 2023. And it's become it's become a, a it eats people's culture, identity, a sense of self confidence. It's just eaten that away in some places like Sweden, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely. There's actually a book 
titled precisely that, Macism Nationalism, I think, by Jöran Adamsom, a Swedish writer. And he describes it very funnily, but sadly, truthfully, is that he says that the multiculturalism is Mm. the mirror of ethno-nationalism. So like you you have two ideologies on both sides. The one is ethno-nationalism, which is people who will tell you that in Sweden there should only be ethnic Swedes. There should not be any non-ethnic Swede. And that's the extreme side. On the other extreme side is this idea that the, it, the ethnic Swedish people are stupid. We should bring other people in here to enrich it and make it a great country. And like like Mona Salin said, you know, you have great cultures. We have nothing. Like Reinfeldt said, everything that comes from outside is modern. We are barbarians. So mm. on, that's the other uh, extreme. Now, the difference is the ethno-nationalists, they, in Sweden, they get a vote of 0.0, I think 0.8% or 0.3, much less. Yeah, so it's well, tiny. It's, it, the, the, to be able to become a part of the parliament, you need 4%. So they're, you know, they have a long stride into, into getting there. <laughs> well, on the other side, the multiculturalism, who are just as extreme, but on the other side, they are mm-hmm. the leaders of the country. So and and he calls it masochism because it is this like self-loathing, this kind of like destructive, uh, uh, destructive scenario that they play out, and it's 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 sad, it's it's disheartening, especially for someone who came here looking for 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 a culture. I came here wanting to adapt to the culture, and it exists. The Swedish culture is exists and it's there, but it's being denied by the leaders and the people who. Um, make policies and it 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 it's like seeing the Swedes being destroyed by their own leaders and their cultural commentators. It's extraordinary. It's absolutely wild. And it, it, you know, comparing it to kind of where you came from in Yemen, it must just boggle your mind that this is how <laughs> Western civilization behaves, how it folds in on itself. Um, it's it's just crazy. So, what do you think? the the future is what what is the area where you're most excited about in terms of hope in terms of turning this narrative around not just with respect to israel and palestine but the future of arab culture the future of islam the future of your people the yemenis i mean these are things that must be on your mind a lot so i i am hopeful okay this this is going to sound very depressing to European audiences, but I am hopeful. I think that the Middle East is going to progress sooner or later. We see this in Saudi Arabia where when political mm-hmm. will exists, when when the Saudis d- realize that their oil money is not going to serve them for long and they have to open up and become more accepting of tourism, accepting for women, let women drive, they... Um, Saudi Arabia is even jailing and imprisoning preachers who are preaching Wahhabism and extreme Islamic um, ideas. Saudi Arabia, you know. So when there is political will, when there's will for change, I think the Middle East is heading towards modernism very slowly, not like the West, but we're going to have our own different version of, of of enlightenment it's not going to be as bright as and technological i think uh, but it will come 
thanks to the, the revolution that has been introduced by the internet as well, where you have these Yemenis and these Somalis who open their phone and watch TikTok and see the world unfold in front of their eyes. So I think there will be a, a modernization and more acceptance and understanding in the future uh, in the Middle East. As for but, Europe and the but, West, sorry, I just want to say that it's also it's also down to leaders like Mohammed bin Salman, who I think sees in Saudi Arabia that there isn't a future for a country that wants to remain in the Stone Age and for a religion that, at its purest, and I use purest with some reservation, but from the point of view of some people, at its purest is is actually not helping those countries and the people of those countries to evolve. We see how. Beautifully, the UAE is blossoming. We see how, uh, you know, very Oman uh, as well is is all of these countries are moving, I think, in a quite positive direction where they're integrating themselves into the world rather than the other way around, and they're making lives for their own people better. Yes, so I, I think that 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 is true, and we see countries opening up Morocco as well in Tunisia, especially Morocco and Tunisia, have been also some of the leading countries in moving towards secularism. Mm. And I'm very hopeful about that. I hope, I know that Morocco and Tunisia are going to be the, the most secular countries. I mean, they're, they're already having like uh, um, pride parades, but they're being like dismantled and stopped. But they are like moving towards futuristic Western ideals very slowly, but they've also cracked down on, on like Morocco is one of those countries that criticism of Islam being an apostate is things that are things that should be normal. And I think that is the, the, the beginning, the first building blocks into dismantling Islam and Islam's well, power yeah. on the communities. So yeah, I, I, it's happening very quickly. Like in my lifetime, like as I said, it's happening quickly. But like in the coming 200, 300 years, I, I'm very hopeful. So that is the positive news. The bad news, and the the foreign minister of the United Arab States also said this, is that the the while the the Middle East is trying to progress and move towards the future. The Muslims and the conservatives and the radical Muslims who move to Europe are not. It's the exact opposite. They have, hmm. they they cling on to Wahhabism. They cling on to this these these um, primitive thoughts and 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 ideas and roots that distinct them from hmm. uh, the the West in Europe, and they will continue to do that because they find themselves in this crossroad between the West and the, the Middle East, and they have to cling on to it. And a part of it, a big part of it is inferiority complex, is that you come to a country, you have to work your ass off in Europe. You have to work three times more than the Swedes to get to where they, to, to get to be as equal as them, because right. it is their country. It's their system. It's their language. Like I moved to Sweden when I was 20 and I had to perfect Swedish. I had to spend four or five years learning the language, perfecting it just to be able to speak as normally as a Swede. So obviously harder. I had to work harder in every mm. single aspect of my life. You cannot be, you cannot thrive as an immigrant if you do not put 300%. 
And after putting 300%, you will also have to expect that you're not going to, to, to you know, you know, re earn or, or be get on receive as much as you have put in because it is a Swedish country. It is a Swedish language. I have yeah. put so much more work in my life into learning in the past 10 years than most Swedes because I come from another culture, another country. That's just yeah. the reality. And that is something that strikes for me. I, you know, I have a brain. <laughs> okay. That was a bit rude. No, I have a brain. <laughs> I, I, I came here with that mindset. I was not expecting to be like, oh, I'm going to be a lawyer in three months, like many of the people who come here uh, yeah. leave. And so I have that awareness and I don't have that inferiority complex, but rather I have respect for reality and how things work. And I'm happy with what I have. Many people who come here get struck by, oh my God, Sweden is not what we thought it was. I, I, I didn't become a lawyer in three months. And that hits them so hard because they see how things work so perfectly for Swedes and it mm. hits them so hard. They see how Swedes have such a beautifully homogenous society and they have nothing. They have just their brothers and sisters and mothers and th the ghetto. And that makes them either cling on to their roots, which is, you know, um, wherever they came from. So what, in, during graduation time, the graduation period in Sweden, most immigrants wave the flags of their countries. They go, you know, everybody runs out and it's like this huge celebration during graduation from high school. And everybody waves, like the Swedes wave the Swedish flag as a thank you. We love our country. Most immigrants who are born here, who went to school through taxpayers' money, who lived yeah. their entire lives here, who should be thankful and, and grateful to Sweden and raise the Swedish flag. The Iranians do, by the way. Most Iranians raise the, they raise the Swedish what, what, flag. What flag do they wave? The, like, so the Albanians wave the Albanian flag. The Somalis wave the Somali flag. The Yemenis wave the Yemeni flag. The Iraqis wave the Iraqi flag. The Palestinians wave the Because they wow. are identityless. They don't feel like they are Swedish. Well, actually, if if, if if they were to debate an ethno-nationalist and an ethno-nationalist tells them, go back home, they will say, I am Swedish. And yeah. when they go back home like it, to Somalia or Syria or Iraq, they don't feel Iraqi or Syrian. They feel Swedish because they, they, they've assimilated, not assimilated, but they've integrated so much into the system and the, into the culture. But yet they still wave the, the flags of their home countries because they feel like that's their roots and they don't feel the same kind of Swedishness that a sweet, blonde Swedish guy feels. And that gives them an, a, an identity crisis. You know, one of the reasons that I have integrated successfully in Sweden is before coming into Sweden, in the airport, my mom told me, Lo, I, I want you to become Swedish. I want you to perfect the language. I want you to read Swedish newspapers. I don't want you to read Yemeni newspapers. I don't want you to read Arabic stuff. I want you to become a part of that society. Wow. And I want you to I want you to to do that because if you don't, then you will end up like one of those immigrants who have identity crisis where their body is in Sweden and their mind is in the Middle East and they have a clash, an internal clash that they will never solve. So I followed my mom's advice and I, I, I feel very, I would never wave the Yemeni flag. I will always wave the Swedish flag, even though like I, I'm not like a super nationalist who will wave the Swedish flag. But if, if I were to graduate or I would be in a ceremony where you raise flags, I would raise the Swedish flag. Um, well, 
I mean, it doesn't so, take much to be called a, you know, a nationalist in Sweden. You, you just have to speak Swedish and you're probably a nationalist. <laughs> but your mother always knows what's best. And in this case, I'm sure that her advice is, is continuing to serve you well. Look, uh, I, I don't know you. We've met for the first time now. But it strikes me that you're exactly the kind of person who I would want to know in Sweden. And I think, thank you. you know, if there are, if there are any things to be learned from this, uh, and there's so many, chief among them would be that by expressing yourself and by having different views, you make yourself more interesting. And, and you're not doing it for that reason. You're doing it because these are truly the things you believe. Uh, you have exposed yourself evidently to many different points of view, some that are, are deeply embedded in your, in your childhood memory, some that are cultural that you'll never be able to rid yourself of. And I don't think you'd want to, but some that you've used to help you along the way. And I'm, I'm just absolutely astonished at how you've taken on Swedishness, but you haven't lost a damn thing, if you ask me, when it comes to culture, because you can still be proud of where you come from. You can be proud of people like your mother and your father, and you don't have to lose anything. There is a way to make the world better. And we just mentioned the UAE and Saudi Arabia who are moving in that direction. And I think there will come a time, I hope it's soon, where people won't look at each other and go, oh, that's a Muslim or that's a Christian. And therefore there could be a problem here when we talk about certain subjects where they can go, that's a fellow human being. And we may have disagreements about the supernatural or we may have different ideas of where we're headed but we can find a way because we want to get along and we want to make the world better and i'm i think it's people like you who are at the vanguard of that so thank you thank you so much your your words are very kind and um i i am i, I do think that like one of the one of the main reasons that i i'm that i and vocal is because growing up, the, the main person that I saw who was kind of resembles me in any way was Ian Hersey. Yes. But I didn't see many guys doing it. And I thought, like, why aren't there more people like that? There, why aren't there a thousand Ion Herseys out there? Right. And 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 they're there, but they're just scared of 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 the backlash. They're scared of being scrutinized they're scared of the death threats and you know my mom has received a truckload of death threats for her activism for not wearing the hijab for not right. succumbing to the society societal norms and i think i carry her genes in that aspect is that <laughs> i really don't care and i do hope i have a lot <clears throat> you know i've lost like my my, my brothers and and my best friend because of supporting is israelis now, many of my Swedish friends have lost their family members and best friends because of supporting the Swedish Democrats, which is the, the right-wing political party that wants to stop Islamic mass, mass migration. So it, th this kind of like consensus sickness is not, it's not just a Middle Eastern thing. And I, I hope to inspire people to, to be able to, vocal the, uh, to, to, to vocalize their thoughts and, and to verbalize their minds without fearing you know, losing people, because if you lose your integrity, if you lose your freedom to express yourself, to say what you actually think, then you're That's not living. A, yeah. It's, you're not living a full, full fledged, beautiful life. So. Couldn't agree more. What a, what a place to end it. Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's really great to talk to you, Luai, and I, I hope we'll speak to each other again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. 
cliffcentral.com.